Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. All right, well, good morning, everybody. Uh, if case it wasn't clear, we're releasing our grade school kids to go to their classes. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I may miss that part where Wes said that, but um, so, uh, yeah, so Wes arranged the March Madness thing. He's collecting all the brackets. He's the one scoring them all, and somehow his son is in the last two getting ready to win this whole thing. I mean, it's not rigged at all. I mean, it doesn't look suspicious at all, Wes. I think, I think it's, all, it's all on the level. No problem there. All right, guys, so hey, <laughs> good to see all of you here this morning. Uh, we are gathering, and we're going to continue our series in Revelation. And we are actually winding down our series. We are now officially on the countdown. We have, with this Sunday, there'll be three Sundays left in the book of Revelation, but certainly winding down is probably not the great, wor- great way to put it because we're actually ramping up in these last parts. These last three chapters are really full of a lot of great stuff, bringing us to this place where uh, really the book of Revelation has been going all along. And, um, but as we, do, as we do kind of finish up, it kind of got me to thinking, and, and I was thinking about the whole series, and, 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 and this past week, I was thinking, you know, this series has really gone well. I've really, I think in a lot of ways, I've been, I, I, I don't know, I've been encouraged by the way that it went. I think uh, there was a little bit of um, maybe question about when we started this out, how is this whole thing going to go? It could easily go sideways in a lot of ways. But I think for most of us, in the end, and the feedback that I've gotten from you has been positive throughout the series, and I think... Um, um, you know, uh, and so as a result, I think it's just been, it's been a good series. And, but as we're getting ready to end, I've, I do have some mixed feelings about it. I have mixed feelings because, as I mentioned, like things have gone pretty well. But I also have mixed feelings because um, I, as it's coming to an end, I'm kind of excited about being able to get my Saturday nights back. Uh, in reality, this has been a really, really uh, a, a series that has required a lot of research and a lot of work almost every single week. And I think for, uh, you know, probably as far as the series goes, I can't remember the last time where every week I was working late into Saturday night to get ready for Sunday morning. It just has been that, work, that much work. And on Saturday nights, it's usually been just kind of really editing it down and really getting to a place where like I've got so much information I've got to decide what to cut out so that we can get it we can allow it to fit on Sunday morning and if you felt like throughout the series these messages have been longer maybe in some cases than other series you're exactly right but just think about if I didn't have that editing time and I wasn't cutting three or four pages at night on Saturday night how much longer it'd be in other words there's a whole lot more we could talk about uh, in, in the book of Revelation, but I feel like as we've gone through this, we have maintained our focus really on our approach and prioritizing three main goals. Really, goal one is that we would be able to see Revelation as a book of hope. We wanted you to see this book as a book of hope that you wouldn't be scared of, that you wouldn't feel like is a book that I can't really access and it's not accessible to me. We wanted you to see it as a book of hope, as one of the 66 books that you can engage with in the Bible. I think for some people uh, who, don't want, who are scared of the book of Revelation or avoid the book of Revelation or whatever, uh, functionally they've got like 65 books of the Bible and then there's the book of Revelation. And so we wanted to give you 66 books back in your Bible, if you will, that you felt like were full of hope and accessible. Secondly, our second main goal, and the reason why this book is so hopeful, is that we wanted the main focus to be on Jesus. I believe this book is all about the focus on Jesus, who he is, what he has done, why we have hope in him, what he is doing now, and what he will do. Rather than sometimes this book kind of moving into a place where, you know, we're trying to 
put together puzzle pieces so that we can predict the future or maybe figure out what kind of world leader is going to destroy the world in the end. Sometimes it gets into those places. And look, those discussions are maybe a part of the book of Revelation. We're actually going to get into a little bit of that today. Uh, But they're the secondary issues. The main issue is and the main focus is Jesus and what he has done. And then third, in all of this, We have wanted to kind of help you sharpen your interpretive skills. I think the book of Revelation is one of those places, as far as biblical interpretation goes, where there is a lot of heavy lifting and it's a full body workout. You're going to get, you're going to see all different aspects of biblical interpretation in the book of Revelation. And there's a lot of heavy lifting that goes on here as well. And so if you're committing yourself to studying and you've been studying this book alongside with us throughout this series, Hopefully you've sharpened some of your interpretive muscles as well. And so I think, you know, based, again, based on the feedback, we have, uh, we have done a pretty good job uh, at, at accomplishing those goals through this. And we've largely accomplished those things in, in our approach. And so one of the things that we've looked at, though, is really just the bigger picture of Revelation and not getting caught in the interpretive weeds. And I think a lot of you have said you've appreciated that. So there's a lot of goodwill going into this week. And so what I'm going to do is take all of that goodwill that we've built up through this series and lay it right on the line here this morning. Because we're going to be talking about, in Revelation chapter 20, we're going to be talking about things like the millennium, the rapture, the great tribulation, the final battle. In other words, all of those things <laughs> that typically Revelation becomes about and the discussions uh, surround about and, then, and, the, and, and all these kind of debated issues and different opinions that people have. And so for some of you who have been asking throughout this series, when are you going to talk about the millennium? When are you going to talk about the rapture? When are you going to talk about the great tribulation? All those things. This is your week, baby. If you're here this week, this is we are going to talk about these things and, and get excited. This is all for you. For those of you who are like, man, I'm so glad we weren't talking about those things and I was excited about the direction we're going. Just bear with us this week. It's just going to be one week and then we get to talk about heaven next week. So uh, if you can bear with us through this week, maybe, and and maybe even in this process, it'll give you a good introduction to how to approach these issues, maybe just a different perspective on these things. And here's the reason why we're covering these things today. The last part of this section in Revelation 20, what we're getting into Revelation 20, is kind of the culmination of the final judgment. Right? In some ways, depending on your perspective, the, final, the, the judgment uh, oracles have started kind of in, in Revelation chapter 6 and have continued all the way through 19, and then we get to a place in chapter 20 where this is a picture of the final judgment. And as a part of that, there's direct references to what we know as the millennial reign or the thousand-year reign. And then when you start talking about the millennial reign, you may know this if, you, if you're familiar with these perspectives, but there are big differ, differing views on what the millennium is all about. We're going to cover those here today. But then related to that discussion are kind of ancillary discussions that branch off of that. Things like rapture, tribulation, what is the final battle all about, and those things are all contained in this chapter, either directly or indirectly in our discussion as well, okay? So as we get into Revelation 20 this morning, I want to remind us that this is not just a piecemeal um, rundown of theological issues for us to debate. I mean, it is a part of a bigger story, it's a part of a bigger context in the book of Revelation, and it's bringing everything to its end. When we're talking about final judgment, this is where we're arriving. And when we say end, uh, we're using end in the way that we've used it so far throughout the book of Revelation. Not as like a ceasing of things or things being destroyed, but as a goal or a purpose or a completion. Right? That word telos in the Greek is about goal or purpose. So what that means is that all of this is arriving at its purpose here in Revelation 20. 
And this is the end of this section, really, that in some ways started back in Revelation 6, because then when we get into the next two chapters, 21 and 22, as I said earlier, we flip the page into the eternal state. It's all about heaven, Jesus' return, and those kinds of things, all right? And so um, this really does end a kind of a, 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 a significant section in the book. So that being said, as you, might, uh, as you might guess, we got a lot to talk about today. So let's dive right into Revelation chapter 20. And it says this, Revelation 20, verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might, deceive the, he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. And then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those who... To whom had the authority, uh, authority to judge uh, was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are the, is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to deliver them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had received them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever. And then I saw the great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. All right. So maybe for some obvious reasons, Revelation 20 is typically the chapter that brings all kinds of questions to the table. In fact, for many people, at least at the first reading, this chapter brings up more questions than it does answers. Questions like, what exactly is this thousand-year reign that's being referred to here? Is it a literal 1,000 years on the earth? Does it mean something else? Is it about a reign from heaven, for example? Uh, what does this reign look like? What is the purpose of it? Why does it happen here? Why does it, what does it mean to say that Jesus' followers are going to be reigning with him? What exactly does that look like? How is it that Satan is bound? We're talking about Satan being bound and released here. What does it mean for Satan to be bound? What does it mean for him to be released? Um, what, is it, what is the second death? What is the first resurrection that are referred to here? Who are Gog and Magog? Besides just being fun words to say, what exactly is Gog and Magog? Uh, what is the final battle about? And when is it going to happen? What is this great white throne judgment? Who's going to be at that judgment? And what is the book of life and whose names are in that book, right? All kinds of questions as you read through this. There's, this is full of all kinds of interpretive opportunities, I should say. And all of these questions are the common questions that are typically asked. We could even ask even more as we get into it. 
But in, in, in all of these, I want to respond really by presenting the bigger picture views and the ways that people have typically responded to these things throughout, uh, throughout the church history. And so before I get into laying out those views, though, I want to lay a few ground rules that I'm going to follow today in discussing these issues, and I hope you'll go there with me as well. First of all, I want to say this is that these discussions that we're having today, especially about the millennial reign and these differing positions, is not what we would call essentials. And it's important for us to understand that because these are not salvation issues. We can believe differently on different views regarding the millennium and the rapture and the tribulation and still all be in fellowship together. We can still be in the church together. We can still be in small groups together. We can still be in Bible studies together. And these things, depending on what we believe, do not essentially affect our salvation or our relationship with Jesus. In other words, they're not core gospel issues. So you can believe in a different one than the person sitting next to you. You can decide, you know, none of these views really kind of, you know, I don't know if I believe any of these views completely. It's still not going to affect your salvation in Jesus and the central aspects of essentials in the gospel. And so it's perfectly reasonable to say that we aren't sure. And, 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 and again, remember that we are talking about apocalyptic imagery, which is some of the most difficult stuff to understand and interpret in the Bible. And we are talking about, at least in this case, in many cases, future events, things that we haven't seen yet. And so it's understandable that there should be some uh, ambiguity and mystery to this, if you will. All right? So we can disagree and still have fellowship together. We can disagree, and it doesn't affect our salvation in Jesus. Secondly, although I'm going to be uh, going to give a brief explanation about all the major differing views, I am going to tell you what my view is, and I do have a strong opinion about my view, and I'm going to present to you the reasons why I believe what I believe. Um, and when I do that today, though, I'm going to make it clear that I'm speaking from my perspective. And it doesn't mean that you have to agree with me to be faithful to the Scriptures, to be faithful to Jesus, to be orthodox. I'm just going to tell you why I believe what I believe from the Scriptures. And then third, as a practical outworking of the first two, I'm bringing back the confidence ratings from last summer. Do you guys remember those? We were in Crucial Questions. We did our series in the summer where we talked about all these topics. A lot of them were debated, the, you know, kind of topics that are hotly debated, have different views and perspectives. And so when we said this is what we believe about this issue, we gave it a confidence rating on a scale of 1 to 10. So I'm going to bring those back just for today. And what I want to say is that uh, we were doing these and we will do it today with, non, again, non-essential issues. On the essential issues, it's a 10 all the way down the board. On the ones that I'm talking about here today, none of these are going to be tens. They're going to be lower than tens because they're not essentials. Uh, those I would reserve for gospel central issues. Things like, as it's related to the book of Revelation, Jesus is the Son of God. He died on the cross and rose from the dead and is coming again to judge the world and bring his kingdom. He will reign for eternity and live with those who are truly his people, in a world that is fully redeemed. Those are the essentials. Now, how we get there, what that looks like from now until then, we can disagree a little bit on because there is some mystery in all of this. And so I don't need to give confidence ratings on those other things, on, on the essentials, those are all tens. But let's start then, with that all being said, where this chapter starts. A reference to what is often called the millennial reign of Jesus. It's a millennial reign because Revelation 20 says it's a reign of 1,000 years, representing a period of time when at least four things are said to happen. First of all, the dragon, who is Satan, is bound for 1,000 years. Secondly, Christ reigns with his people for 1,000 years. Third, when the 1,000 years end, or at least towards the end of that period, Satan will be released to deceive the nations and attack the nation and attack God's people for a short time. 
And then finally, there will be a final battle at the end of which the devil and the beast and the false prophet will be judged and thrown into the lake of fire forever. Those are the four things that are talked about in this chapter that all four views agree on this is happening in some form or fashion. So the big question comes from then how will this happen and what does it look like? And so we're going to talk about these four views now. The first view we're going to talk about is, uh, is a view that is known as the premillennial view. And this view basically believes that the second coming of Jesus will happen previous to the millennium. So the millennial reign that's described there, the thousand years, the belief is that Jesus will come again, and when he comes, he will come before that millennial reign takes place. Now the millennial reign in this case is a literal reign on the earth. It may be a thousand years, depending on which premillennial position you take. Maybe it's literally a thousand years, or maybe it just refers figuratively to a long period of time. But in the premillennial kingdom, um, Jesus will be here reigning on the earth with his, with his kingdom realized on the earth with resurrected believers. So all of those who are uh, God's people from Old Testament, New Testament, Jews, Gentiles, will be given resurrection bodies and will rule on the earth for this period of time. During this millennial reign, there will be people who are not believers. There will be sin and there will be evil, but sin and evil will be minimized. In fact, the rule will be Jesus' righteousness everywhere. We'll see kind of flourishing of humanity. We'll see peace. We'll see all of these things that are happening as evidence of the kingdom of God. And so in this way, right, it's not only the message of the gospel of the kingdom, but it's the, it's the, it's the, kind of, it's the reality of the kingdom actually here on earth for a period of time with people who are resurrected, with people who are, uh, people who are chosen of the Lamb, sealed by the Lamb, and people who are really God's people. Now, during this time, the proclamation of the gospel goes out, and the belief is that a lot of people who didn't previously believe in Jesus will now believe in Jesus, and there'll be a great spiritual revival in the world because they'll see the kingdom, not just hear the message, but actually see the evidence of it in, in Jesus reigning on the earth and all the effects that his kingdom has in the world, healing and harmony and flourishing, even nature will flourish in a way that is kind of undeniable in terms of Jesus's redemption. And so that's the premillennial view. The idea is that Satan is bound at the beginning of that millennium, which kicks off the millennium, and then he's released towards the end of that period to then attack the physical kingdom of God, or the kingdom of Jesus on the earth, trying to overthrow that kingdom. And in the process, he's defeated before he has a chance to affect God's people. And at the final judgment, he will be judged, along with the beasts, along with, um, and along with Babylon. And then finally, at the great white throne judgment, all of those who have resisted the invitation to the kingdom and are marked as people who are people of the beast, of the kingdom of the beast, will go into eternal judgment with the beast and, um, and the dragon. Okay? So, that's... That's kind of the understanding of premillennialism. That's actually historic premillennialism. So that's, there's two different kinds of premillennialism. That is historic premillennialism. The second side of premillennialism, the second wing of that, is what is known as dispensational premillennialism. Now this view shares with the first view that Jesus will come, the second coming before the millennial reign, and that the millennial reign will be a literal reign on the earth. In this case, most people who believe this view say that it is a literal 1,000-year reign on the earth. Now, there's a few things that happen, though, before the millennium, including things like um, what is known as a secret rapture, right? And so what this, uh, this, this view comes from, uh, as the name indicates, a, a bigger theological position known as dispensationalism. 
It's too much to go into all that dispensationalism means because there's a bunch of different ideas and wings and streams within dispensationalism. But simply put, what dispensationalism means is that God deals with people differently throughout history based on different dispensations. And the most general dispensation is a division between Israel and the church. So that God deals differently with Israel than he does with the church, mainly Old Testament, New Testament. God's different in the Old Testament with his people than he is in the New Testament with his people for the most part. Okay, And so the idea then is that Jesus, when he originally came, he came to appeal to the Jews first that they would recognize him as their, as their king and their long-awaited Messiah so that the kingdom of Israel could be established on the earth. Because Israel rejected Jesus, Jesus then, um, Jesus then saves the church, he ascends into heaven and he waits for a time to come back, and when he comes back, this thousand-year reign will be the reign of the kingdom of Israel. Now it's based on uh, two promises specifically in the Old Testament. The promise to Abraham in the Old Testament that Abraham will inherit the land of Canaan and also the promise specifically to King David that King David will have a king on the throne. And so what the dispensationalist view says is that that thousand year rule is the fulfillment of those promises in particular and the other ones that God made to Israel in the Old Testament, right? That the land will be there, that a kingdom will be there, the temple will be rebuilt and Jesus will reign as the king of Israel on the earth from the city of Jerusalem and the temple building that is rebuilt in the city, okay? Now, this is why we get to the rapture. The rapture is an idea, we're going to talk about this a little bit more, but the rapture is the removal of all the non-Jewish believers during the church age. And so what God is doing during that time is that that Jesus comes down kind of halfway into the clouds, he removes all of the believers from the, all the non-Jewish believers from the earth, all the church, so that they can make way then for the Jewish believers and the Jewish kingdom to come during the millennial reign. Some believe then there's a seven-year tribulation after the rapture. Others believe there's a a three-and-a-half-year tribulation or heightened tribulation after the rapture. It's like pre-trib, mid-trib, rapture, if you've heard those uh, terms before. But the idea is that that tribulation leads into the millennial reign. And during that tribulation, there will be Jewish people who have a spiritual awakening to Jesus as their Messiah, and they become the ones who preach the good news of the coming kingdom, which is the coming millennial kingdom, okay? At that point, that's when Satan is bound. He's released at the end of the millennial reign to attack, to kind of grab other nations and a coalition to attack the kingdom of Israel. God defeats them at that point, and then final judgment comes after that, again, where Satan is judged, uh, the beasts are judged, all those who rejected Jesus are judged, and then the eternal state happens after that. And then depending on how you view the eternal state, uh, Jews and Gentiles may be separated in some ways in the eternal state because, again, the promises to Israel are different than the promises to the church, and those are fulfilled in the eternal state. One thing to remember in this as well is that during that thousand-year reign, those who are non-Jewish, who are believers in Jesus, are in heaven while the believers, uh, of the, the Israelite believers, the Jewish believers, are on the earth for that thousand-year period, Okay? So there's a distinction and a separation that happens there. In some ways, depending on who you ask, and again, this can go all over the place with different interpretations, those separations exist on into the eternal state to some degree, okay? So that's dispensational premillennialism. That's a big, that's a mouthful, it's a mouthful of things to say. But we move to the third view. The third view is the postmillennial view. Postmillennial view, again, just like it sounds like, uh, believes that Jesus, the second coming of Jesus, will happen after the millennial reign. So the millennial reign that is referred to here is not a literal thousand years, according to this view. 
fact, this thousand years is more figurative, and what it, what it, what it talks about or what it refers to is basically the completion of time. It take, it's taking kind of the language that's used in previous places in Revelation that talks about thousands upon thousands, the myriads upon myriads being a complete number. Also, in other places in Scripture, I've cited this before in this series, but like Psalm 50 talks about God owning the cattle on a thousand hills means that God owns it all, thousand being a number of completion. And so the post-millennial believes that this thousand represents the kind of fullness of time. Now, they, they believe that Jesus comes after the millennium because the current age merges into the millennial reign at some point. And what this means is that the current age as it's going, the current age that we live in right now, will eventually transition into a reality where this world is more um, evident of the kingdom. In other words, it's more Christian, there's more righteousness of Jesus, there's flourishing, where the righteousness of Jesus becomes kind of the rule rather than the exception. Sin and evil will be diminished, or diminished as much as possible. There'll be this great revival spiritually in the church and possibly in Israel as well. And then that will usher in the millennial reign, which will happen for a certain period of time, at the end of which Jesus will come back, and it all happens at once. Jesus comes back, second coming, the judgment happens, final judgment, and then uh, resurrected bodies are given, and that, then that ushers us right into the eternal state where the new heavens and the new earth will be our eternal state, dwelling with Jesus forever, all of God's people together, Jews, Gentiles, all of it, Old Testament, New Testament, all the saints together. So that's the post-millennial view, and the view is that, and so the binding of Satan either happens when Jesus was resurrected and ascended uh, 2,000 years ago, that, some people believe that's the binding of Satan, Others believe that it will happen at some point in the future, and the binding of Satan is what kicks off the millennial reign, right? And then again, Satan will be released at the end of the millennium, right before the final judgment. Then Jesus returns at that point, when there's probably a large amount of tribulation going on in the world. He returns, judges Satan, judges, every, judges all the beasts, all the rest, and then we move into the eternal state, okay? So that's three. Let's take a breath. The last one is what is known as, or let me take a breath. The last one is what is known as the amillennial position. Now, the amillennial position, I don't really like that term because I don't believe that that really communicates this position. Amillennial would technically mean no millennium. That's not really what the view articulates. This view believes in more of like a realized millennium. In other words, what is being said here is that the thousand years that's referred to in Revelation chapter 20 is referring to the current age. Satan was bound at the resurrection and the ascension in particular of Jesus. So when Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father in the heavenly throne, a picture that we see over and over again in Revelation, specifically in Revelation chapter 5, when Jesus is on the throne, that is the reference to the reign of Jesus. And he reigns on the earth through his church, indwelt by his spirit, which started at Pentecost. And so the era that we are living in right now is actually the thousand-year millennial reign according to this view. Okay, and obviously it's not a literal thousand years. It is because we're 2,000 years into this thing, right? And so for, the, for this view, what this says is it's a figurative number, again, equating a thousand years with the completion of time. Now for the all-millennial view, it makes the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus the turning point of history, which marks out essentially what is the end times. And there's this kind of mixture of already and not yet in the understanding of the victory of Jesus. In other words, the victory of Jesus has already been accomplished. He's already reigning, but we don't fully see it yet in this world, right? Satan is bound, but he is still active. That doesn't mean that he can't be active. That doesn't mean that he doesn't have influence. That doesn't mean that he doesn't tempt people. His boundedness means that he is not free to deceive the nations. 
understanding that what that means is that the gospel goes out to the nations rather than deception going out to the nations. The church goes out to the nations, that kind of thing. So Satan is not bound to deceive all the nations, or he's bound so that he's not free to deceive all the nations. He's bound by the gospel, he's bound by Jesus' authority, and he's bound by the church's activity as well, okay? So, with that in mind, then, the, the amillennial position believes that, and there's differing views on this, but essentially we'll get to a place where Satan is then released, and when he's released, persecution, tribulation, all of these things will happen towards the end of the age, and there'll be an, an outright attack on the church and God's people in the world, and it's at that point that Jesus comes back, the second coming, and then again, it's just like the post-millennial view, it all happens at the same time. Jesus comes back, there's a final judgment, uh, he defeat, well, he defeats, uh, he defeats uh, Gog and Magog and the, uh, the forces of, of Satan, and then there's a final judgment where Satan, the beasts, and all of those who have rejected Jesus are judged, and then we go, uh, judged eternally, and then we go into the eternal state, again, all believers together, Jews, Gentiles, Old Testament, New Testament, all together in the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth. That is the amillennial view, okay? So, there's a few different views to consider. Along with these views on the millennial reign, though, that's not the end of the story, are two other issues that are often uh, injected into this debate and discussion. You heard me refer to them briefly in our discussions. One would be the rapture, the other would be the great tribulation. Let's talk about the rapture first. Now, it may seem strange that we are talking about rapture, and whenever you, maybe when somebody heard you were talking, or you were going through the book of Revelation in in church that, you know, maybe doesn't go here, a friend or a relative, and they're familiar with Revelation at all, they might have said something about, well, have you talked about the rapture yet? And in some ways, it is kind of strange that the rapture is, that so much is made of the rapture in the book of Revelation, because as we just read, and up until this point, I assure you it's not in the next two chapters, up until the first 20 chapters, we have not seen the word rapture directly referred to at all. In fact, the word doesn't exist in the book of Revelation, and there is no direct reference to the actual activity of a rapture happening in the book of Revelation. So where do we get this idea from? Well, it pr primarily comes from two places. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, where Paul says this. He's writing to the church at Thessalonica. They're concerned about the people who have died, who, are, who have been Christians in their church, who have died and gone ahead of them. They're asking Paul essentially what's happened to them. Are we going to see them again? What hope do we have of seeing them again? And this is part, in part how Paul responds. In verses 16 and 17 from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he said, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, and with the voice of an archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Now that phrase, caught up, right there in verse 17, uh, is where we get the word rapture, because the Latin word for that phrase forms the English word for rapture. So that's where we get the idea, that's where we get the word rapture. Some also believe there's a reference to the rapture connecting the trumpet thing to 1 Corinthians uh, 15, or the trumpet imagery, not the trumpet thing, the trumpet imagery to 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 52. And it says this, In a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Now, those, uh, so there's two major views that we're going to deal with regarding the rapture this morning. The first is, what is the typical image 
of a rapture when of the rapture in terms of how it is typically used. And this may be the idea or the image that you have in mind. Uh, because maybe you read the Left Behind books in the 90s or you saw the movies or whatever it was. It was really popularized by those books in particular, which is representative of a dispensational theology. But essentially what this view says is that there is a tribulation or a pre-tribulation rapture that is going to happen. It can either be pre or mid, and it's a secret rapturing of God's people from the earth. So that at any given moment, right, God's people will, Jesus will come back in the clouds and he'll come back kind of halfway, not all the way as a second coming, but it's like a halfway second coming. And he comes into the clouds where he pulls all the believers into the sky and literally people will leave the earth and fly into the sky with Jesus. That's the secret kind of rapture. We talked about earlier that that is designed for a couple of purposes to help his people escape the, the, the tribulation that's coming but also to prepare the way for kind of the Jewish kingdom or the kingdom of Israel that's coming onto the earth, right? And so, again, depending on the view held, either the rapture happens at the beginning of that seven years or it happens in the middle of those seven years at three and a half, the three-and-a-half-year mark. And after the millennial reign of Jesus as king over a thousand years, um, then, then Satan and the beasts are judged, as we talked about earlier, okay? The other major view of the rapture that, hold, uh, uh, that, that some people hold is that the caught-up the rapture part that is used in 1 Thessalonians 4 and the trumpet raising from 1 Corinthians 15 are describing one event that happens when Jesus comes back. And the event that it's describing is either a rapture event that happens immediately and a pre-trib, and a, and a, I should say a pre-millennial view. That is typically the view that pre-millennials have is that there is a rapture that happens immediately but then that rapture happens so that uh, uh, believers and unbelievers can have resurrected bodies. And then at that point, then that's what, what ushers in the millennial reign, right? So there's a rapture, but at the same time, it's more of a resurrection that's referred to here in Revelation 20. It's not a rapture where uh, God's people go to heaven for a while and, and, and they're there for seven years or a thousand years. It's a rapture that happens and then immediately the millennial reign happens and takes place after that. And it's for the purpose of them receiving their resurrection bodies to live in the kingdom uh, millennial reign of Jesus that we talked about earlier. Uh, the post-millennial, or the post, uh, yeah, the post-millennial and the amillennial view is a little bit different. What that view believes is that the rapture or the being caught up part is about just the resurrection that will happen when Jesus returns again. It's in reference to that. It's in reference to believers and unbelievers receiving resurrection bodies, and then they will both be judged, believers judged at the judgment seat of Christ, unbelievers judged at the great white throne judgment, and then that ushers in final judgment and then um, the eternal state, okay? So as far as rapture goes, those are the two views that, 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 that people hold. Now, what about the question of the great tribulation then? When is this tribulation that Jesus refers to in the Gospels as a time of tribulation worse than the world has ever seen? In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says there'll be a tribulation that is worse than the world has ever seen. What does that look like? And how does all that play into all that we've read in Revelation? Things like the bowl judgments, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments that seem to include a lot of tribulation in all of that. When do those things happen? When do they take place? And what do they look like? Well, there are, again, three views on this. First of all, the first view is that tribulation is happening in the present. Um, this belief says that the great tribulation period actually happened in the first century, among the first century church, and that that's kind of the big earthquake. If you, I'm going to use earthquake imagery with this a little bit. That's kind of the earthquake image that happened. That's kind of the earthquake of tribulation that happened in the first century. And since then, tribulation has been happening, but more of kind of aftershocks of that great tribulation that happened towards the first century. 
This is indicative of a post-millennial view because post-millennials believe that things were really bad and things are progressively getting better and moving towards more of a millennial reign on this earth before Jesus comes back. So yes, there's tribulation. There has been tribulation in history. It still exists, but it'll eventually start to get better as more and more people are, are, coming, to the, are coming to Christ as the church gets uh, more widespread and gets more of a kind of a hold in this world, right? There'll be less tribulation and less persecution. Second, the second view is tribulation exclusively for the future. So the great tribulation, uh, this means that the great tribulation is reserved for a time specifically in the future. This is a dispensational view primarily that says the tribulation will happen during a seven-year period. It's re- it relies on an interpretation from Daniel chapter 9, understanding that that seven-year period is a literal, literal seven-year period where basically all that's described in the book of Revelation with the judgments, uh, the trumpets, the seals, the bowls especially, are reserved for that period of time, those seven years. And yes, there's tribulation now. Yes, there are wars and famine and all these other things that are, that are listed there, but they're nothing compared to what will happen in, the, in that seven-year tribulation. And when Jesus refers to the great tribulation, he's talking specifically about that. The last view would be tribulation is now and in the future. And again, to use an earth, the earthquake imagery, what this is saying is that tribulation happens now, but it happens cyclical. And so what we see in, in, in the book of Revelation, for example, the judgments, the seals, the trumpets, and the bulls, again, do represent tribulation that has happened since the first century, continues to happen in the world, but they're almost like precursor tremors to the bigger earthquake. And the bigger earthquake is coming eventually in a sense in which tribulation will be more widespread. It'll be all over the earth, and it'll be uh, in many places even more... Um, identifiable and even more devastating than it is right now. Um, When Jesus talks in Matthew chapter 24, he says things like, you will know the tribulation is here when false messiahs and false teachers will come. Well, from this view, we could say, yeah, there are false messiahs and teachers who have come and who were there during Jesus' time and continue in the church. You'll hear about wars and rumors of wars. We hear about that. We've heard about that repeatedly throughout history. You'll hear about famines and earthquakes and diseases and natural disasters. Yes, we've seen and we've heard about all of that in the past 2,000 years in the church, really all throughout human history. You'll hear about uh, persecution and martyrdom for the church. Yes, we've heard about all those as well. And so this checks all the boxes that Jesus talks about in terms of being the tribulation. But from this view, yes, it's happening now, but it will and probably, but it could potentially and likely will get worse as time goes on in the future, especially once Satan is released uh, to have uh, full freedom for a short period of time before he's judged. Okay, so there we go. There are the three big issues, millennial, rapture, and tribulation. I want to hit on this last one here because it's in this chapter, this reference to the battle of Gog and Magog. All, all of these views agree, no matter what view you take, everybody agrees that this reference comes from Ezekiel chapter 38 30, and 39, where Gog and Magog is identified as kind of this mysterious nation. There's no other historical record of Gog and Magog. We don't have another record of them necessarily in the Bible. And so Gog and Magog, most scholars believe, Magog's the nation and Gog is the leader. And in some ways this might be a a nickname for a nation or it might even be a kind of a name of a coalition of nations who are coming against Israel. And it says that they're coming against Israel in the Old Testament from the north. Now, God, dist- or God thwarts their plan before they have a chance to attack Israel, and so they're not actually able to do it. But the idea that's retained here is that there is an enemy of God's people who is attacking them by a coalition of forces, and then they don't actually accomplish what they're trying to do. They get thwarted by God's uh, kind of supernatural intervention. 
You see the same thing happen here in Revelation chapter 20. But there are different ways to understand this. The, uh, the dispensational view, for example, would typically take this as a military attack on Israel tw towards the end of the millennial reign. So, um, for instance, during the Cold War, it was, it was popular to identify Gog and Magog with Russia, for example. That died down for a little bit, and now Russia's back in the news, and you may see that there's a rise in this kind of identification again. Because the Old Testament refers to it as a, as a, as a country or a nation from the north. But what we see in Revelation is that this refers to, to nations that come from all corners of the earth. Not just from the north, but from all corners of the earth. And so um, the dispensational view would say this is a literal military attack at the end of time, uh, over the, over the, uh, at the end of, I should say, the millennial reign against the kingdom of Israel. Other views would say something like, well, this, just re this represents uh, kind of the nations against God's people, so persecuting God's church, those kinds of things, all right? So there's a few different ways to understand this, and, uh, and depending on um, how we understand it, it leads to some different conclusions. But, all right, so in all of this, right, I think one of the things we want to take from this is understanding why we believe, what we may believe about these views and how these views might lead us to understand different things. Look, we said earlier these are not essentials, and I still believe they're not essentials, but I do believe that they are important. Because you can imagine, depending on what you believe about how God is going to do things and how things are going to be brought to the end and what the millennial reign looks like, it impacts uh, what you expect God to do. Uh, it impacts maybe even how you live right now in the world, faithful to God. Um, it's not the core of the gospel, but it does impact how we understand God's activity in the world. Now, the reality is, is that all views hold together these ideas that God is active in the world, that he's faithful to his promises, that God is bringing hope through Jesus Christ, that Jesus ultimately is the king, he will be the king for eternity, he's bringing a new, uh, a new, uh, new creation, that we're going to be with him in the eternal state together with other believers, and that'll, be the, and, and that'll be the hope that we have, the eternal hope that we have in the end. And when that happens, none of this discussion is even going to matter because it's all, it's all gone, right? It's all happened. But it may ha and it may happen in different ways than what we expect it to be. At the same time, there are several places in the book that are determined by our in interpretation, right? What do you do with all the judgments that we see in Revelation 6 through 19? Well, you've heard me interpret those throughout this series, and I've tried to keep my personal views as much as possible out of interpreting those, but at the same time, as you've heard, if you've picked up on it, I've tipped my hand in what I believe because you can't really talk about those things without, in some ways, interpreting what you're talking about to make sense of it. For instance, I've said things like the end time, I believe the end time starts with the ascension of Jesus, and that the tribulation referenced by John in Revelation 1-9, when he says we are partners in this great tribulation, has already started. And that the judgments, at least the six judgments, the first six judgments of those series of seven judgments, are things that are happening now with the seventh judgment, the seventh bowl judgment, the seventh trumpet judgment, waiting for final judgment to happen, right? That's the one that's in the future. So I think it's been obvious that we at least haven't been presenting, or I don't fall into the camp of the dispensational view that lines up with something like the Left Behind series. And if that's your view, I'm, I'm not saying that you're not faithful to Scripture, that you know, you're not faithful to, to God, that you're not trying to understand as best you can, and that maybe you might even have a better understanding than me. But what I'm saying is that at this point in my, in, in my life and my understanding of Scripture, in particular the book of Revelation, that is a view that I do not uh, necessarily agree with. And um, the dispensational, and, and I want to say that because I believe that although the dispensational view is only 200 years old, it has become in many ways the dominant view of the modern Western church. 
And in a lot of ways, it's often presented as this is the only way that you can believe the book of Revelation. In a literal, in a very literal sense, uh, that's kind of the interpretation map. And then in an understanding of God's promises from the Old Testament being literally fulfilled in these various ways in the future. And I want to tell you, I ho- hopefully we've demonstrated this, that um, it isn't the case that you have to believe just one view on this. You have to believe the dispensational view, for example. There are other ways to believe this. And in fact, for the first 1,800 years of the church, nobody believed in a dispensational view because it didn't exist. It's only existed really for the past 200 years, even though it's become the most dominant view uh, today. Okay, so for the first 1,800 years, right, it didn't exist in this way. No one had even heard of dispensationalism in its current form. So, with that being said, I promise to talk not just about um, what are the views out there, but what I personally believe. So here goes. I would classify my approach as uh, an amillennial or realized millennial view. Again, what this means is that the millennial reign, which is mentioned really only in these verses, right? The millennium is, ver- is mentioned one place in all the Bible, Revelation chapter 20 right here in these verses. That doesn't mean that it's not important. That doesn't mean that you can just throw it away and say, well, this doesn't really matter because it's only mentioned once. What it does mean, though, is that it's to be understood within the context of the bigger book and understanding of the story of Scripture. That it's a part and a piece of the bigger message of the book of Revelation. And one of the, one of the things that we understand about the book of Revelation is seeing the uh, reign of Jesus become very evident throughout the entire book. I mean, go back to the beginning from Revelation chapter 1. You see Jesus presented as the victor. He is the one who has won victory. He's clothed in white. He's wearing a golden sash. He's got golden lampstands. He's the alpha and the omega. He's the one who has the keys to death in Hades, which is, by the way, I believe is a reference to the key in Revelation chapter 20, where he locks Satan and he binds Satan by his resurrection, well, by his death on the cross, by his resurrection, and by his ascension, Satan is bound so that he has influence, but he's not free to influence the world in whatever way he wants to. He is bound by Jesus' victory. He's bound by the gospel. He's bound by the work of the church. He's bound by Jesus' authority as the one who is reigning even right now on the throne. Throughout the book of Revelation, we see images of Jesus on the throne. Revelation chapter 5, he's proclaimed as the victor over and over again. The one who is worthy to open the seals on the scroll. I mean, the way I read it and the way that I understand Revelation is that this is a statement of the victory of Jesus. That he is reigning even now and that this is his victory. And that already he is the victor. Although not yet, we ha- although we haven't yet seen all of the realities of that victory in this world, this is the reign. And we still reign as uh, co-reigners, if you will. Uh, you see those pictures in, uh, by the way, in the visions in Revelation, where those who are gathered around the throne have crowns on their heads. It's a picture of them reigning alongside Jesus, especially the elders. And so you've got all this picture of the reigning of, of Jesus and the reigning of the church happening even now. Now, it's not yet fully realized for two reasons. First of all, because as Scripture says, God is patient, uh, wanting all to come to repentance. So he's extending the time before Jesus returns again. Also, but, but then at some point, as the tribulation may, as tribulation may get worse, persecution may get worse, as Jesus says in, Re- in Matthew chapter 24, for the sake of the saints, there will be a time where this is cut off and final judgment will happen. Okay, So that's, the, that's essentially the position that I hold. I think there's a lot of imagery that backs that up. I would say that my position on this, uh, my position on this is a, uh, the number that I was assigned to as far as a confidence rating would be an eight for amillennialism. I want to say nine, but I want to be humble at the same time as well. So 
<laughs> so it's an eight. <laughs> Along with an eight regarding uh, one event, rapture, if you will, I believe the rapture does refer to a bodily resurrection, uh, not a secret rapture that happens like in a two-stage process where people are secretly raptured into the sky and, and disappear, and then years pass, or a tribulation pass and thousands of years, and then they come back at some point. I believe that that reference is a reference to the bodily resurrection. When Jesus comes, that's all one event. Jesus comes back. Uh, the dead in Christ are raised, given resurrection bodies. The dead outside of Christ are raised, given resurrection bodies, and then they're judged accordingly. Uh, judgment seat of Christ for believers, where they're given reward as they enter into the eternal state. Judgment of unbelievers is the great white throne judgment where uh, their names will not be found in the book of life, as Revelation 20 says, and so they go off into eternal judgment with Satan, the dragon, the beasts, and all the rest. I would also say that um, in terms of tribulation, I believe that uh, the tribulation is both a now and yet to come kind of thing. In other words, it's a present but also a future reality. Uh, that image of the earthquake happening. There are tremors that we're feeling of it right now. The bigger earthquake will happen at some point in the future, and that point is when, specifically when Satan is released um, for a short period of time before Jesus returns, and then he's able to kind of run havoc on the earth for whatever period of time that might be, including attacking the church. I believe that's a picture of tribulation and persecution. And then I would also assign uh, another eight to uh, the final battle of Gog and Magog representing the, the widespread persecution, worldwide persecution of the church uh, during that end time before Jesus comes back, okay? So eights across the board. Again, I probably would like to say nines on some of those, but again, I'm trying to remain humble in all this and realize the fact here. Here's a simple fact in all this, and, and maybe this will kind of bring us together if you're feeling like, uh, I, don't, I don't really like where you're going with this. I've held all four views, all four millennial views at a given point in my Christian life. And so I understand exactly why uh, your view, if you have a view, sounds like it's, it's it, you know, feels like it is, it is, it is true and it's right and it's, and, it's, and it's relevant and all those things. Because I'd agree, I, at certain points in my life, and I'm not going to say like in five years I might change my mind again because I think that cheapens my view and where I'm at, my stance and where I'm at. But I'm open to the fact that, and realizing the fact that I have moved through each, four, each one of those four views. Man, when the Left Behind series came out, I was crushing those books right? And really what I liked was the theological book that came out that explained all the theology and biblical evidence behind why they wrote those books. That's the book that I like devoured and highlighted over and over again and taught in a Bible study even at the time. I was in college, I remember, and I was all fired up for that. So I get it. I understand. There's a lot of elements of truth in each one of these things, but again, this is where I've landed and kind of given you my reasons for that. But again, no tens. I believe tens should be reserved for the essentials, and speaking of that, this is how I want to close this morning. All this has brought us to this place where we're supposed to ask ourselves, what are the takeaways? We've talked about a lot of things. We've parsed words. We've parsed, you know, all kinds of different understandings. We've uh, kind of picked things to pieces and, and gone really deep in some areas. But I think what we really need to bring this back to is understanding, again, these two scenes and what they mean. The first scene is a focus on the millennial reign, but even more than that, it's a reminder of the fact that God is faithful that God is acting, that God is going to act according to his sovereign will, no matter what that looks like in the end, the promise is that ultimately God will bring back, uh, God, God, Jesus will come back and he will bring his kingdom with him. That there will be a time of judgment where sin and evil is removed forever off the planet and will be in a place that is exactly the way that God intends it to be for eternity. Where we are dwelling with him, 
where his righteousness, his character, his glory is everywhere in every piece of creation. That creation is flourishing the way that it's supposed to be, and we will be in relationships with resurrected bodies that are healed forever and will not give, not give way to disease, to death, or decay. And whether you believe those promises are fulfilled in, the, in some ways in the reign of Jesus right now and leading up to this place, or whether your hope is in a kingdom that will come you know, at the other end of Jesus' second coming, the reality is that justice and righteousness will one day reign for eternity. And we have hope because evil doesn't have the final word. God is moving. God is active all the time. He's not asleep, ignoring evil and injustice, ignoring the persecution of his people. He sees it all, and he will bring justice in the end. And in the end, this is an invitation to trust in the God who promises these things. All which brings us to the second part, and this is the challenging part, the great white throne judgment and the book of life. This scene is about really the dead being judged, which is a way of saying that those who do not have life in Jesus are judged at the great white throne judgment. There will come a time where every single one of us will stand before a judgment seat. Either it'll be the judgment seat of Christ for those who are in Christ. It'll be the great white throne judgment for those who are not in Christ. And at that point, the book of life will be opened up. And if your name is not in the book of life, which is a representation of those who have believed and trusted in Jesus, it's another representation of those who have had a, uh, the, the seal of the Lamb placed on them. It's those who trust and believe in the Lamb who was slain on their behalf. They no longer have to trust in their works or their own righteousness because they have the righteousness of Jesus covering them. They have the forgiveness of Christ covering them. They have the life of Christ being given to them by His Spirit. And in the end, they are marked out as His people for eternity. And what this says in Revelation 20 is that those who stand before the great white throne judgment will be judged according to their deeds. Another way of saying this is that they'll be judged according to their sin. We know scripture says that none of us, that none of us, no matter how righteous we try to be, measure up to the standard of holiness of God. We all fall short. And so if we have to stand in our own righteousness, uh, in the end, we will be doomed to fail. In the end, we're doomed to condemnation. And so the picture here is that we are covered with the righteousness of Jesus so that we don't have to stand in our own righteousness. Right? And so the challenge then for all of us is to make sure that our faith rests in the salvation of Jesus. That we're not relying on our own righteousness, that we're not relying on, um, on, on, on just being kind of good people, but that we recognize that our sin means that we are in need of a Savior. And that our lostness means that we are in need of a shepherd and a king to come and to give us hope to give us a future, and to save us. And in the end, the question for all of us, which is really the most important thing in this whole discussion, if you've heard nothing else that I've heard today or you don't agree with anything else that I've said today, I'm fine with all that, but I want you to understand this and I want you to hear this, is that the most important thing is that you know Jesus as your Savior and King and that you know him that way today. Everything else will take care of itself. I'm confident in that. We just sang a song, Your ways are higher and greater than mine, Lord. And in a lot of ways, his ways are going to be realized as greater than what we anticipate them to be. And so we praise him for that. We are confident in the fact that as we come to Jesus, if we know him, in the end, he will be our Savior and King. And so I want to pray for, I want to pray for you and pray with you this morning. If this is something you're thinking through, I want to allow you just a moment to kind of think through what this implication means for you. Do you know Jesus? Not do you have a position on the millennium. Not do you uh, have a position on the rapture, but do you know Jesus? That's the most important question to answer this morning. Lord, we thank you that uh, 
you tell us that uh, the wisdom of man <laughs> is, is, put, is put to shame by your wisdom. Um, and that your ways are higher than ours. And so we come to you humbly this morning, asking you to sort out in our hearts um, the most important issues and questions that come from these passages. Uh, they're, they're difficult to understand in a lot of ways, Lord. I, I think that uh, you, know, you have made them that way for a reason. In some ways you've made them that way so that it would humble us. You don't explain everything to us in your word because you call us to live by faith in the gaps that we don't understand. And so we ask for that faith this morning. Um, and, and, and to the degree that the other things need to fade away so that we can focus completely on the beauty that is Jesus, Lord, we ask that you would enable us to do that. Spirit, would you do that in our hearts? Would you do the work that, you, uh, that Jesus said that you came to do, which is to testify of who he is? Would you work in our hearts to display the beauty of Christ and the sufficiency of his salvation? Would you work in our hearts uh, this morning to prepare us? One of the callings that you have on the book of, book of Revelation is for us to overcome as the church, for us to overcome in faith because Jesus is the ultimate overcomer. He has overcome sin and death and the grave. He has overcome injustice and evil. He has overcome greed and the abuse of power. He's overcome every wicked thing in our hearts and every wicked thing in the world. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to be people who latch on to that hope as our hearts call and as our hearts song. As we respond to you closing in worship today, as we sing about Jesus being the center of it all, Spirit, would you focus our mind on him? We pray these things in his name. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. Question I left you with was, uh, do you know Jesus? And if that stirred something in your heart during our prayer time, during our worship time as we closed here this morning, we want to invite you to come and talk to us. If you'd like somebody to talk with and, and pray with, maybe, maybe that came to mind and you're thinking to yourself, I'm not sure exactly what this means. I want to figure out what it means to know Jesus. I want to understand all about what it means to know him as Savior and King of my life. Um, we have the Hoshuaras um, who, are, who are able to talk with you. Steve and Sharon over there, I'd be willing to talk with you. So approach any of us after the service. We'd be happy to talk with you a little bit more and pray with you about that in particular. We've got two weeks until Easter, guys. Can you believe it? It's coming soon. Palm Sunday is next Sunday, and then the following week is Easter. And so we want to remind you to grab Easter invites as you leave here this morning. Be thinking about and praying about the folks that you want to invite to be a part of our Easter service and to celebrate the resurrection and the promised return of Jesus Christ as we talk about Revelation 22 that day and we finish up the book. Um, it'll be an encouraging and hopeful service. And so we want to invite uh, everybody and anybody who can be a part of that to be here that morning. So um, uh, as well, uh, we, are, we are also uh, inviting you to... Uh, uh, write down some prayer requests as you leave here this morning. So if you, as you leave here this morning, we have prayer request cards. If there is something going on in your life 
that you would like prayer for, we have prayer teams that are a part of this church who are committed to praying through those prayer requests every week. I'd encourage you, if, if it's big enough for you to be praying about on your own, it's probably big enough for uh, other people to be praying with you, in particular, uh, your brothers and sisters in Christ, people who are in your church community. And so we consider it an opportunity to do that with you. If you would fill out one of those cards, though, with your prayer request, put it in the uh, offering stands as you leave here this morning. We'll make sure that it gets uh, to the right person. So thank you again for being here. Great to see all of you here uh, this morning. We'll look forward to seeing you again soon. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.